Hi there, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I recently had a great time talking with Anjan Chakravarti about his book, A Metaphysics for Scientific Realism, Knowing the Unobservable, and that just came out in a new paperback edition in 2010, and that's the edition that we spoke about for the purpose of this conversation. This is a book that um, talks in a very elegant, a very coherent, and a very detailed way about what it might look like to propose a unified account of scientific realism, and a metaphysics, rather, of scientific realism. Now, it's a book that is both extraordinarily detailed um, and uh, exhaustive in its description of the major ideas and major components of um, different theories of and proposals for what it might look like to think about scientific realism, to think about the world of unobservable things and how um, they are written about and known about in the sciences and how they have historically been written about and known about in the sciences. It's a book that I highly recommend, especially, but clearly not only, but especially um, for anybody who doesn't self-identify as a philosopher of science, but who wants um, a very uh, accessible, very well-worked-out, and very comprehensive um, account of past theories, current theories, future theories, and major components of theories on scientific realism. It's a, it's a crucially important part of science studies, um, and this is a book that is an excellent um, introduction to those issues, in addition to being a really interesting argument. We had a great time talking, and I hope you enjoy. Good morning, Anjan. Hello, Carla. We're here today to talk with Anjan Chakravarti about his book, A Metaphysics for Scientific Realism, Knowing the Unobservable. That came out first with Cambridge University Press in 2007, and there was a new paperback edition in 2010, and that's the edition that we'll be talking about today. Anjan, thank you so much for making the time to talk about this exceptionally rich book with us. Um, this, is, this is something that, as a historian of science, I was particularly pleased by, I think, this... Um, this is something that, as we'll talk about over the course of the interview, it's a work that gives and, and really deeply um, and carefully develops tools for anyone, I think, interested in telling stories about science, narrativizing science and its nature and its history and its practice. Um, so tools that we can all use, whether or not we want to do the precise things that a philosopher of science would do um, with them, you give us tools to work with um, that really speak to the basic fundamental concepts that um, most of us are using in our own disciplinary practice. So it's, it's a wonderfully rich read. And thank you so much for being with us. Oh, well, thank you very much for saying so. And of course, it's a pleasure to be here. One of my intentions in, in writing the book was to try to, uh, to cast the debate, which has been a very interesting one for philosophers of science about scientific realism, in a way that might be accessible to people who work across the breadth of our field, including historians and sociologists. So I'm very gratified that you thought it might be. Absolutely. And we'll get to um, sort of specific examples of that over the course of this, but this is, um, it speaks to issues that I think are very broadly relevant to the field of STS in general. So perfect for new books in STS. Great. So, Anjan, can you um, start us off by, I know this is a, a very, very broad question, so feel free to dive in where, wherever um, in this question you prefer to, but why philosophy of science? If you can sort of think back, what brought you into this field? What most inspires you about this particular set of questions that you are working on? 
Right. Well, my interest in the philosophy of science, I suppose, goes way back. But my ending up in the philosophy of science as a professional philosopher was really a bit of an accident, I think. Uh, I suppose it started way back in high school when, uh, I suppose for a couple of different reasons, I found myself thinking about philosophy of science type questions without even realizing that that's what they were. Um, I suppose I experienced in microcosm what a lot of us experience today just in public life and public culture, a kind of schizophrenic attitude towards the sciences. On the one hand, uh, we experience the sciences as a kind of ultimate arbiter of authority on questions. When we have, uh, you know, on the news, when they want to prove a point, uh, they wheel out a scientist or show someone in a lab coat to tell you exactly what's going on. Um, and there was very much that sense in high school that, well, the sciences were the sort of paradigm way of, of trying to learn about the way the world is. On the other hand, in everyday life, we have uh, all sorts of voices suggesting that we should take a skeptical attitude towards the sciences, all sorts of controversies surrounding scientific theories, like the theory of evolution, or about scientific findings, for example, concerning climate change. And I experienced that too in high school, thinking about how the sorts of theories that we were learning every year uh, seemed to be supplanted the following year when we arrived uh, to school in September and were told that actually all those things we learned last year were, they were approximations, they were things that maybe people thought 200 years ago. Now, here's what's really going on. And of course, this exercise was repeated every single year I went in and that sort of, I think, fomented a slight worry or skepticism on my part as to what this enterprise was all about. So I think the seeds of my interest in the philosophy of science were were sown very early. Um, I suppose it's also true that, and this is merely an autobiographical uh, fact about me, I was one of those kids in high school that really loved both the humanities and the sciences. And so when going to university or facing the prospect of going to university, I was really worried about having to give up one or the other. And then I ended up going into an undergraduate program that allowed me to, to specialize in the sciences. My first degree was in biophysics, but also sort of secretly, covertly do a, a major in philosophy on the side. And I didn't even know at that time that there was such a thing as the philosophy of science. Uh, but over the course of doing a degree in the sciences and doing a bunch of philosophy courses, ultimately, it took me a few years, I realized that, oh, there is such a thing, and that that's, in fact, where uh, my most profound interests lay. That's right. I, I think that's, um, I mean, speaking also as somebody who got into the field of science studies for exactly the same reason, or very similar reason, I think um, it's so, it's funny. I, I didn't, I think a lot of us don't realize that this field exists until we kind of stumble into it and take a course and realize people can do this professionally. You can have it both <laughs> ways. Um, so for any undergraduates or um, potential undergraduates out there listening, or for anyone who has significant sway over uh, undergraduates who might be thinking, this is a great um, history of science, philosophy of science, science studies. It's a great, great field for, for those of us with these very kind of broad-ranging interests who don't want to give any part of those up. I think that's a wonderful message to send out. And in fact, I suppose it's not surprising that uh, a lot of us don't come to this field until later, uh, in part because as you know, it's a very interdisciplinary field. And sometimes, you know, one does need to have a discipline before one can start thinking in interdisciplinary ways. Um, I was just lucky that a lot of the, the science professors I had were so indulgent of the sorts of questions I was asking. I would ask questions about the science, of course. Uh, uh, but then after class, I would often ask questions that turned out to be really foundational questions about physics and biology, in 
how do we know that these bizarre entities that we're talking about here in this physics particle physics class how do we know that they exist or you know what is the exact mechanism of natural selection and when you start to focus on those sorts of questions um scientists and science professors uh can take varying attitudes and some are slightly dismissive and luckily mine were extremely encouraging and said you know these are excellent questions but if you really want to grapple with them in depth then you need to go down the road to the philosophy department or the history and philosophy of science department and that's where people spend their lives worrying about these foundational issues so i got some very good advice exactly now the the book itself deals with one of the most foundational of these foundational issues and that's the idea of scientific realism so um even in the preface, you walk us through um, the set of issues that are going to continue to be important throughout the book, but primarily um, we have this question of scientific realism, namely, it, how, what is it to say that scientific theories correctly describe the nature of a mind-independent world? And this mind-independent world is a phrase that will come up um, again, and so that's why I'm using it now. Okay, so this is sort of the basic idea of scientific realism um, as you sketch it out at the beginning. Now, what about scientific realism in particular um, sort of is so important to you? Um, in, in other words, what, what about this particular problem, which is you know, among the most foundational of the foundational problems, um, what speaks to you in particular and how did you decide to go in this direction? Well, I suppose one of the things that sent me in the direction of debates about scientific realism was just the sort of skeptical worry I mentioned earlier that we often find presented in public discussions of the sciences as well as academic ones. Um, it occurred to me that in thinking about scientific knowledge, uh, we often encounter discussions that treat it as though it's uh, one thing and that it's either... Uh, a take-it-or-leave-it proposition that uh, scientific knowledge is either something that you endorse or you deny. And it seemed to me that in thinking about the kinds of examples of scientific knowledge that I'd experienced in high school and uh, my undergraduate days, that things couldn't quite be that simple. Uh, there seemed to be certain domains of scientific theorizing in which we felt as though we had a real grasp of what was going on. We seemed to be able to uh, perform very impressive experiments uh, to demonstrate what was going on. There are other areas of the sciences in which uh, things are much more speculative. Uh, we posit various things for interesting explanatory reasons, but might not yet be able to perform experiments in order to detect whether these things really exist. So it seemed to me that there was uh, a very impressive range of degrees of commitment with respect to belief when it came to scientific knowledge. And when I started thinking about uh, how we should think about the, the truth of this knowledge or whether it was true at all, I realized that we would need to have a fairly fine-grained account of which bits of scientific theories and scientific models we should take most seriously as telling us about the nature of the world. And I suppose it's that that really brought me to this debate between scientific realists and scientific anti-realists. Um, scientific anti-realists being people who deny uh, that the sciences give us knowledge of a mind-independent world in one form or another. And it was in trying to sort out um, which way I should fall uh, in this debate between scientific realists and scientific anti-realists that I realized I could grapple with this, this question of how to be discerning 
in thinking about which parts of the sciences we should believe and which parts we should perhaps suspend judgment on. Great. Thank you so much. And and that's really what the book does um, so carefully um, and so well, I think, as we as we get into it. Um, so you say at the outset you have two goals here and they're related goals. And this will sort of bring us into um, sort of exploring these goals in more detail. The first is to identify metaphysical commitments. And, sort of, and we'll talk about what this means, metaphysical. Um, I mean, listeners may, you know, hear this word and think metaphysical, you know, that's a whole bunch of floaty highfalutin concepts that it's actually much simpler than that and it really for at least for me um, means just thinking hard about the basic elements of the, the of your beliefs right sort of if you take um, the components of what you if you're trying to figure out what to believe about the world or what to believe here about science's relation to the world out there that's independent of our minds um, and you're trying to figure out how to come to some sort of belief about that, that you can really stand behind, it makes sense to think about, well, what are my tools for constructing that belief? And um, how can I think carefully about that? And then ultimately use that to get me to a place that I can stand behind. And that's really what metaphysics means here, um, at least for this reader. <laughs> so it's so when we say metaphysical commitments, it's something that's actually, I think, very accessible and very down to earth in a way that was really pleasantly surprising to me. But okay, so to identify the metaphysical commitments that are constitutive of realism, and then to give an account of um, a unified uh, or a unified account of a metaphysical proposal in support of that. Now, importantly here, and I, I wanted to sort of um, get us into this by um, asking you to speak a little bit about this. You importantly argue that even though you're you're giving a unified account of a proposal for a certain kind of scientific realism here, you're you're arguing that it's not the only account um, that's possible. It's one of many possible accounts out there. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Why is it important to you to um, to open the field like that? And uh, at what point, perhaps, did it become important to you to make sure to emphasize that as part of the work? That's a great question, I think. And it really turns on the nature of metaphysics, as you've described it. And I think you gave a very nice characterization of how we should think of it. Uh, I think when people hear the term, especially people who perhaps haven't taken a philosophy course before, haven't worried about philosophical issues before, uh, it's frightening. And it really needn't be. I mean, metaphysics is just the branch of the sciences that is concerned with, as you said, the sort of first principles of things, uh, the most basic questions of what exists and what their natures are. And to the extent that we characterize metaphysics that way, um, it might be hard to distinguish it from the sciences. After all, the sciences also aim to try to give us uh, explanatory and descriptive accounts of what's out there and what those things are like. Um, but metaphysics, as a tradition of thinking about these questions, uh, often appeals to and discusses very fundamental issues, uh, issues that perhaps are even more fundamental than the issues that the sciences are concerned to talk about when looking into the nature of reality. So when scientists are interested in describing, say, categories of, uh, say, particles in physics or categories of organisms in biology, um, they study those things often and most generally empirically by making observations, uh, investigating in various ways, performing experiments. Um, but those kinds of investigations often leave more basic questions uh, 
more metaphysical questions uh, up in the air. So we can do all of the um, all of the empirical investigation we like, and there are still going to remain certain very fundamental questions about the objects that scientists are interested in uh, to be tackled. And those questions are difficult to tackle by performing experiments. We tackle them by doing a lot of thinking. Um, and so, to give an example, uh, quantum mechanics is our current best theory of very small things, subatomic particles. And it turns out that we can do all sorts of amazing, fantastic experiments to try to shed light on what these particles are like. But even after we've done all of that, there are certain very fundamental questions about what these particles are like. Are they individuals or not? Are they objects like the everyday macroscopic objects that we deal with in everyday life? <laughs> these sorts of questions seem to call for kind of, as you described it, metaphysical thinking. Now, to turn to the question of why it was so important to me um, to describe the metaphysics that I do in the book as only one account of the metaphysics of scientific realism, it's really because I think that when we get into the domain of metaphysical theorizing, our, our inferences, our conclusions as to what we should believe are always going to be, I think, um, somewhat more uh, uh, tentative. They're going to be somewhat less amenable to testing by forms of evidence that we think might really tell us which approach is right. So in the sciences, we might think that we have very good evidence for the existence of, say, genes or DNA. Uh, but when it comes to metaphysical questions, do we really have good evidence for the existence of laws of nature, for example, as conceived in a certain way? <laughs> well, the arguments are going to be telling. And so I take it to be important to the scientific realist to be able to give a metaphysical account of the foundations of scientific realism. What do I mean by that? Well, in describing what scientific realism is, scientific realists often invoke certain very important concepts like causation, right? They think that we can have knowledge of a mind-independent world because we can causally interact with aspects of that world. But what is causation exactly? Well, that's a metaphysical question. Um, scientific realists often appeal to ideas like laws of nature, right? The sciences are discovering laws of nature. But again, what is a law of nature? That's a metaphysical question. And because questions like what is causation and what is a law of nature are so difficult uh, to answer. And because they're not amenable to the same sort of empirical testing and experimentation that other sorts of questions that we might consider in the sciences are, um, I think it's a kind of academic or intellectual uh, humility that requires us to think that, look, there may be different ways of coherent giving accounts of what, say, causation is or what a law of nature is that might actually serve the purpose of making sense of scientific realism um, equally well. I certainly in the book have a particular view of how best to do that, but I wouldn't want to be dismissive, at least not entirely dismissive, of other possibilities for doing so. What I take myself in the book to have done is to have given uh, a sort of consistent, coherent, unified account of how we can make sense of these very important core central concepts 
of scientific realism. But that might leave open the possibility that it could be done another way. Mm-hmm. Great, thank you. Now, the um, as we sort of get into what this account looks like and how we build up this unified account um, from the ground up, really, um, you give us Dracula. <laughs> we have Dracula at the very beginning of the book. We have baked goods um, that you, you warn us there are going to be baked goods in here. And I can attest as a reader, there are both chocolate fudge brownies and um, slices of pumpkin pie that you use as examples later on. There's also, um, interestingly for historians of science, an armillary sphere um, that opens up uh, the first chapter that we go into. And, and you describe this picture of an armillary sphere as a way of talking about um, um, at least in part, the the importance of distinguishing between observables and unobservables. And as um, we get into unobservables, both detectable unobservables and undetectable unobservables, in this um, cluster of debates and arguments and ideas about um, science and how we can trust um, what science tells us about the world, can you talk about um, unobservables and observables and why that distinction is so important and um, what we sort of why and, and also detectable versus undetectable unobservables? What what does that have to do with um, that what you're going to continue to argue later on. Sure. Well, scientific realism, as you mentioned, uh, has several elements. One of the elements of scientific realism is the idea that uh, there is a a mind-independent world out there. There's a world that exists quite independently of us and scientists who are investigating it. Um, Another dimension of scientific realism is the idea that the knowledge that we get via scientific investigation, the putative claims we make about the nature of this world are actually uh, true or they're at least close to truth. Uh, At least our best theories and models are giving us descriptions of this reality that are true or close to the truth. And as it turns out, in debates about scientific realism, uh, the distinction between what's observable and what's unobservable has turned out to be a sort of fundamental crux in the discussion. Um, the most common way of uh, spelling out a scientific anti-realist position is to say, look, okay, there may well be uh, a world out there, um, but for various reasons, various skeptical reasons, what we should take scientific knowledge to be is a knowledge of what's observable. That is, what we can actually detect using our unaided senses. So here, the term observable, although it sort of adverts to what we can see as being used as a kind of shorthand for anything you could detect with any of your senses. And the idea here is that things you can detect just using your unaided senses, have a kind of privilege when it comes to knowledge, right? If you can see something, if you can, you know, wrap your knuckles on it, then that gives you a very firm kind of evidence that the thing that you can see or the thing that you can touch really exists. The worry uh, about a lot of scientific knowledge on the part of anti-realists is that once you extend your investigation beyond things that you can detect with your unaided senses, once you start to think about things that you might require very sophisticated equipment to detect, say, uh, uh, things that you need to look through a microscope to see, Uh, that once you're starting to do that, uh, really we're reaching beyond our uh, abilities uh, to be confident about what we're then discovering. And there are various arguments, um, some historical arguments um, from the history of the sciences that 
uh, attempt to show that when we've used sophisticated equipment, when we try to extend our senses, go beyond what our senses allow us to detect, we're bound to get into trouble. That is, we're bound to posit the existence of entities that, you know, down the road we may decide don't really exist. We've performed new experiments or performed new detections that um, suggest that we were originally mistaken. So this cleavage between what's observable and what's unobservable has been very important in the debate between realists and anti-realists. Realists suggesting that we can know things about unobservable stuff and anti-realists being suspicious, skeptical, agnostic about various kinds of unobservable things. The reason I divide unobservables into two categories, detectables and undetectable things, is that I think there too, uh, we have a kind of ordering with respect to how confident we should be in the existence of things. Scientific realists are often going to be uh, uh, willing to extend belief beyond observable things to things that they can detect. So a moment ago, I gave the example of seeing something through a microscope. Scientific realists might say, look, you know, if we had really good microscopic evidence that, say, a certain kind of protein exists, that's evidence that will sway me to believing that it does. Um, there are other things that may be undetectable in principle. That is, uh, we have no way or can conceive of no way of actually performing an experiment or using an instrument to detect it. And for those sorts of things, I think we have to be a little bit circumspect about how confident we should be in their existence. And so the idea here is that we have observables, we have unobservables. Among unobservables, we have detectables and then undetectables. And as you move along this spectrum from observable things to undetectable things, we might want to be increasingly circumspect about how confident we should be in the existence of the things uh, we're talking about. Great. And in um, in the course of explaining to us the importance of um, the sort of detection and observability and unobservables, um, you the book um, and this chapter in particular raises a, a very useful chart that really makes the point that it's not just a dichotomy between realism and anti-realism we're looking at here. It's really a spectrum of very different ways, but related ways of thinking about the problem of scientific realism um, in, in slightly different different resonances and with different forms, but that thinking through which kind of realism or anti-realism or um, some or uh, idealism that you want to hold involves um, thinking through some common elements or some common problems. And so what we're going to be doing um, in the rest of the book as we move through is taking some of these fundamental problems that are at issue in decisions about what kind of position about real scientific realism one wants to take and exploring those in order to develop um, a kind of um, very rich um, account that um, you're calling semi-realism here in the next chapter that seems to incorporate some of the best insights and get rid of some of the problems that we looked at with some of these other kinds of realism. Okay, so you raise this um, in the next chapter um, by introducing us to two particular kinds of realism, um, one of which is going to go on to be very important later on, and this is entity realism and structural realism. So entities and structures. Can you very briefly say a little bit about that, uh, those two kinds, and why they're important? Sure. I think that entity realism and structural realism are perhaps uh, the two most compelling variants of scientific realism uh, to have emerged in the last few decades of debate concerning these issues. Uh, and what's interesting about them is that they take 
really what seem to be, at least on the surface, diametrically opposed views as to what we should believe when it comes to scientific knowledge. Uh, and what I try to do in the book is to say, look, if these are the most promising variants on scientific realism, let's try to extract their most promising features and leave behind some of what I take to be difficulties that plague them in fusing or forming a new scientific realist position that will hopefully be maximally defensible. And that's what I've called semi-realism in the book. So entity realism is the view that under certain circumstances, uh, we should believe in the existence of certain entities that are described by our best scientific theories or modeled in our best scientific models. And the idea here is that when we have uh, very good abilities to uh, intervene on various phenomena or manipulate um, particular kinds of entities, that gives us uh, a very strong reason for believing that the entities that we use to intervene on things or the entities that we can manipulate exist. So it's sort of a direct argument here from the idea that when we can causally intervene or manipulate, when we have a kind of detailed causal knowledge of something, that gives us really good reason to believe that those things exist. So if you can take uh, a, a slice of DNA and insert that into a cell and cause the cell to manifest various kinds of features and behaviors, right? You're using that slice of DNA to actually manipulate what's going on in a cell. That gives you very good reason to believe in the existence of DNA. That's the kind of argument that entity realists put forth. What they, what they suggest then is that we might be a little bit skeptical about the theories that describe these entities because, for one thing, the history of the sciences has taught us that theories are likely to change over time. We don't believe the same things today as we did 100 years ago or 200 years ago. And likely in the future, we will continue to refine, perhaps uh, entirely overthrow some of the current theories that we now accept. So what we can do is believe that certain entities exist, but we might want to be suspicious or circumspect about what... Uh, the theories that describe these entities say about them. So, you know, believe in entities, be a little bit suspicious about the theories that describe them. Structural realism takes what seems to be the opposite tack. Structural realism is the view that to the extent that scientific theories or our best scientific theories are telling us something about the world and most specifically the unobservable bits of the world, what they're telling us about is the structure of those bits, uh, not the entities um, that are so structured. Now, I know that sounds quite abstract, but the idea is basically this. Um, you could imagine the entities in, uh, that are described by a particular theory as interacting in various ways. They stand in various relations to one another. And what the structural realist says, we learn a lot about the relations between things, but we'd be fooling ourselves if we thought we learned a lot about the things that are so related. So in a famous example, uh, John Worrell, who has talked a lot about structural realism, says, look, in the 19th century, we had various theories of the nature of light, and light was taken to be a disturbance in a kind of medium. Why is that? Well, because light was thought to be a wave-type behavior, and all the other waves that people knew about and discussed had media. Water waves were waves in water, and sound waves are waves in the air. There's some medium in which the wave-type disturbance is propagated. And so they thought, well, then, light, being a wave-type disturbance, must propagate in a kind of medium, and they call that medium the ether. Well, it turns out that we no longer believe that there is such a thing as the ether. And the moral that structural realists draw from this is that all the theorizing that people did about light, about how light 
uh, is reflected, refracted, and so on. All the relations that we take light to enter into as it behaves in various ways. We can be realists about those things. Those things are often captured by mathematical equations describing the behaviors of things. But we shouldn't really believe in uh, very much about what our theories say about you know, the nature of the entity light. Right. Once we thought it was a disturbance in the ether, now we don't. Those sorts of characterizations are, coming, are going to come and go. What we can believe in is the structure of their behavior. Now, I'm sorry, did you want to go on? Oh, no, I was just going to say that um, the reason those two theories or those two accounts of realism seem to be opposed to one another is that one is saying we can believe in entities, but you know, don't really believe in what the theory says about their relations. Right? The structural realist wants to say, well, let's believe in what theories tell us about relations, but be a little bit suspicious about what they tell us about what entities exist. And these two theories... Uh, seem to be dramatically opposed to one another. What I try to do in the books is to show that actually they can be reconciled after all. Right. And this, um, so you give us a way of reconciling this, that this is semi-realism, right? And this is this description of, I mean, once we start talking about um, relation, like knowing by knowing relationships of properties um, and those properties being causal properties, meaning things that actually do work um, within those relationships that we can detect, this is where it really started getting going for me. And I think this is really where we start kind of ramping up. And these are, this is a kind of set of insights sort of that weave together knowledge about objects and sort of identifying objects by identifying, I mean, I'm being very sort of simplistic about this, right? You're much, much uh, more articulate about this. And I know I'm simplifying things, but the basic idea um, that there's a problem problem with knowing about the objects of our study and that we can understand them in some way by looking at the kind of work they do on our knowledge of them and by looking at their relationships or the, the properties that or the relationship between their properties and the properties of things they engage with that seems to me to be super important and really fundamental to the way a lot of us um, who are thinking about scientific knowledge from lots of different disciplines are thinking about the objects of our study and and that's really where this starts getting really exciting for me. Oh, that's great. I'm glad. The whole idea of marrying the two positions, entity realism, structural realism, is, as you say, really founded on uh, on that insight that the key to any defensible scientific realism is going to be the idea that what we have at bottom, at, at root, is a knowledge of the causal properties of things. Um, that is to say, when we perform an experiment, you know, do we detect the existence of an electron? Well, in the first instance, what we're detecting, say, is perhaps a property, the property of negative charge. And similarly, with all sorts of other detections that we might perform, what we detect are properties, I call them causal properties, because they confer on the things that have them certain abilities to behave causally. And I think once you have that insight, once you... Uh, make the move to understand our best scientific knowledge as a knowledge of properties, causal properties in the first instance, then we can see how positions like entity realism and structural realism sort of fall out. I mean, once we've detected a number of properties and have very good reason to think that those properties exist, then we can start to see how certain groups of those properties cohere in space-time, and they always seem to come together, and that's what we call an object. Um, but it's also the case that these detections of properties are uh, indicative of certain relationships that these properties uh, allow or that they endow 
uh, the possibility of on the objects that possess them. So if we are able to detect a negative charge, that's because we have an instrument that is able to interact causally with that property. And those kinds of interactions and relationships are precisely the sorts of things that structural realists think we can know. Um, so I think the idea of standing in relations to things and investigating them by, via our causal relationships with things is the way to integrate these positions and has to be at the core of any defensible scientific realism. And this insight about taking the, our causal relationships with things as primary also extends to the very end of the book, where I think, um, and this is important um, to point out, at least from my perspective, this is important to point out for listeners because this was really um, important for my experience in the book, um, the this insight extends to your raising at the end of the book, and we'll sort of get there um, in, in a little bit of time, um, the fact that this it's important to take into consideration how scientists actually use theory. So at, at no... This is not just about creating a highly formalized, abstract idea of what scientific knowledge ought to look like in its idealized form, and I'm sort of using a term of art from the book. Um, this is about trying to understand the way scientific knowledge actually functions and bringing to bear the tools of philosophy of science to help do that. And so basically, um, this is very grounded in practice. For me, and that's um, uh, that speaks to at least um, one aspect of this importance of uh, you know from the meta level down to the level of our analysis, understanding through understanding our causal relationships. Um, the, the sort of the other thing that you're talking about, the uh, looking at relations, even though, again, for listeners who are interested in STS or who might be more familiar with SSK, even though you explicitly say in the book that you're not trying to take on the literature and concerns of SSK, you do explicitly talk about um, the sort of relationship between um, objects and their um, sort of causal properties in terms of sociability later on. Right. I mean, you do sort of raise the issue of sociability later on in the book, albeit in a different context. And for me, I mean, these are moments where for the reader who's willing to think flexibly about disciplinary concepts and boundaries, these are really useful um, to think with, I think, even beyond the philosophy of science. Oh, I'm, I'm really glad you think so. The, the challenge, I think, in thinking about these sorts of very theoretical debates about knowledge and what exists uh, is that they can become divorced from actual scientific practice, actual practices of knowledge generation. Um, and those sorts of practices, of course, are the bread and butter of various other aspects of our field more generally, uh, STS, sociological approaches, and so on. And I think it's very important that uh, even when one is conducting a fairly abstract uh, investigation into uh, a somewhat abstract debate, as I've done in this book, uh, that it be responsive to actual features of scientific practice. If not, it's not clear that we're talking about anything. And so I certainly want that to be the case, and I'm glad that you you find it has that um, uh, that feature. One thing that I think is interesting about the idea of sociability, and just to, to introduce the idea, what I suggest here is that once we make our uh, causal contact with certain kinds of properties, properties that we can detect, these causal properties, the bedrock of our scientific realism, uh, we then find that various other aspects of scientific knowledge, I think, are understandable in a way that really breaks down some of the barriers between scholars in different parts of the field. Um, 
some philosophers who talk about very elevated notions like truth with a capital T and objectivity with a capital O and people who are more focused on scientific practice and interested in the very contingent ways in which scientists construct scientific knowledge um, in various uh, conventional and other socially informed ways. And the idea of sociability is just that once one uh, has set up knowledge as, uh, in the first instance, detecting uh, various kinds of properties, it turns out that we have a lot of flexibility in scientific practice as to how we group those properties into the sorts of objects that we recognize as filling out our scientific taxonomies. Um, I think a really nice example of this comes from biology. It's one that's known to a lot of people. turns out we have a lot of flexibility in terms of how we group organisms, say, for example, into species. There are different species concepts that take different features of organisms as being especially important in demarcating certain groups of organisms as belonging to a species. So some species concepts really privilege the idea of interbreeding. The members of a species are a group of organisms that uh, can uh, successfully, at least potentially successfully, interbreed with one another and produce fertile offspring. There are other conceptions of species according to which, uh, for example, a species is a historical lineage of organisms that starts way back when at the beginning of the species and will end one day in the future uh, with the extinction of the species. And so the members of a species is any organism that is part of that historical lineage. Now, these different concepts of species actually carve the nature of our biological reality into different sorts of categories. And they do so on the basis of different sorts of properties, different sorts of causal properties. And the idea of sociability is that in each case, there are groups of properties that seem to cohere neatly in nature. This isn't something we can make up or that scientists can decide simply by fiat, by getting together and having a vote. These are things that they need to discover. But sociability is something that can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. And when we choose to recognize certain categories of things in nature as comprising a scientifically interesting category of things, what we're doing is picking out one particular sociable grouping of properties. And by sociable here, I mean it in its metaphorical sense. They seem These properties seem to like each other's company. We find them together in nature. There are different ways... Uh, of recognizing social groupings of uh, uh, properties. And this, I think, really gives us a nice account of the sort of conventionalism and social contingency that enters into scientific descriptions of things in nature. Great. And in that, um, so, you're, so in talking about the species concept and kinds, this is one example of um, a chapter-long discussion of a particular central concept um, that comes late in the book. And so we, um, I won't ask you too much about this um, so that we can actually get to this last part of the book, which is really fascinating. But I'll mention for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, um, that we have very elaborate and very detailed and very helpful, I think, chapters that you give us on um, objects and the nature of how we might understand objects here. Um, we have uh, very um, sort of extended treatments explaining um, this idea of causality and what it can mean and what it doesn't 
does and doesn't have to mean, since this is um, the basis for a lot of the elaboration of these ideas as it's going to manifest later on in the book, um, you also give us really interesting treatments about sort of what does it mean to talk about a property. Um, So this is all to say, before we get to this discussion of sociability and how we can understand this in the context of natural kinds, right? Whether there are sort of essential natures to kinds or whether they are understood as more kind of clusters of properties. Before we get here, one of the really nice things about the book is that you're setting up the scaffolding and building up a foundation where all of the individual components that we need to to ultimately, in part three of the book, understand how they're going to come together to give us this account of um, uh, sort of this new account of scientific realism um, are really there. And and the book really fleshes out in detail um, how to understand these. So we're kind of using these terms of art, you know, as as we're talking, but um, this is just to say that for the interested listener, um, there are very detailed um, accounts of what each of these terms mean, what they have meant um, for previous philosophers of science and what they might mean as we move forward. Okay, so this idea of natural kinds kind of closes the second of third uh, of three parts of this book. And in this third part, we move to taking um, these tools that we've built up in the first two parts, these discussion of objects, um, what does it mean to talk about causality, what does it mean to identify and know something about an object, um, structures of scientific knowledge, and so on and so forth. Um, And part three considers um, how these matters overlap in looking at issues of um, representing nature, describing nature, and using theories and models to do this. And this part of the book also brings up some really fascinating connections between knowledge in the sciences and knowledge in the arts. So um, this is what we'll move to now. Now, can you talk a little bit about, um, so in this, in chapter seven, which is the penultimate chapter of the book, um, you look at the importance of representing the world versus describing the world. And this is going to be very central to what happens later. Can you talk a little bit for us about um, what it means um, for your purposes to represent versus to describe the world and why that's important? Sure. Uh, I take it that when we construct scientific theories or when we build scientific models, one of the the key aims in doing so is to represent some sort of phenomenon in the world. At least uh, in the sciences, that seems to be a core goal. There are other uh, arenas in which perhaps it's not. I mean, perhaps in some areas of, say, I don't know, fiction writing, uh, we may be interested in creating something that doesn't represent any particular concrete phenomenon in the world. Uh, it may do so in some abstract way, but maybe not any particular phenomena that we might find in our world. Um, I take it that in the sciences, what we're interested in doing is giving some sort of representation through our theories and models of the nature of the reality that we're investigating. The nature of representation, though, um, is something that I think really needs to be unpacked very carefully. Uh, And this, I think, is suggested in part by the very different sorts of things that philosophers of science think the sciences are supposed to be doing. I mean, some philosophers of science think that uh, the sciences are in the truth business. They're just after telling us truths. And others think that, well, what they're trying to do is give us explanations of what's out there. And other people think, well, they're really just trying to uh, give us descriptions of what's observable. 
And all the unobservable stuff is just a way of uh, sort of a heuristic device of actually delivering facts about observable things. And it seems to me that it's important to think about representation in a way that makes it a flexible enough notion so that it can capture all of these different sorts of aims of science that are attributed to the sciences by different sorts of people, and no doubt rightly in various contexts. So representation, I take it, is kind of a, an overarching notion that has to be flexible in that way. The, the key to representation, I think, is to think about it, at least in this context, as having a couple of dimensions. I mean, one of them is that representations are uh, intentional, and by that I'm using a, a technical philosophical term here. They have intentionality, meaning that they're about something. They point to something. Uh, they point to something outside of themselves. So scientific theory or scientific model uh, is directed towards something in the world. The other dimension of representation that I think is very important is the idea of information. And here this harkens back to what I said a moment ago. The, the point in building this representation is to give us some information about the thing that it points to, right? certainly in this context. Now, those are the key elements, I think, of representation here. A description is a very particular kind of representation. A description is a representation uh, that is linguistic. It may take the form of a description in natural language, what you and I are speaking right now, in a technical language, a scientific language, in a mathematical language. When we employ a language um, in the service of representation, then I think we're giving a description. Great. Um, and, and you speak a little bit here t- also um, for those uh, listeners who might be interested in how these issues might ramify into discussions of local knowledge and sort of um, local styles of reasoning and so on and so forth. There is a bit of a, dis- a discussion here about um, the reason this is important in the context of thinking about translation um, and uh, sort of how descriptions are bound up with language um, that embody them or that they embody. And um, this is actually, I think, I mentioned this briefly because I think this is a really interesting set of issues to think about um, for scholars who are interested more broadly in um, language and the sciences. And so I'll direct those listeners to Chapter 7 because there's really interesting um, discussion of the linguistic character of descriptions and why that's important to scientific knowledge in here. Now, um, as we look at this, um, one of the things that becomes really central um, here um, and and is central throughout the book, um, but we haven't yet talked about this, um, to understanding uh, the the different kinds of work that description and representation do and the reason why this is important is the distinction between abstraction and idealization. And I say this because this also allows us to move into um, the concluding chapter where these issues of abstract versus um, idealized theory will continue to bear out um, as we think about how the arts might um, impact how we theorize the sciences. So can you say a little bit about um, abstraction and idealization, the difference there as a way to move us into um, the, the conclusion or concluding chapter of the book? Sure. Abstraction and idealization are, are really terms of art in uh, not only the philosophy of science, but also uh, the philosophy of art, uh, aesthetics, uh, and various other domains. I think it's really interesting to think about these uh, as a pair because they are both examples of how scientific theories and scientific models um, 
deviate, often intentionally deviate, from what we take to be true or correct characterizations of the things that our theories are supposed to describe or the things that our models are supposed to model. Um, so let me just describe the difference between them, at least as I use the terms. The idea of abstraction um, is the idea of representing only some aspects of the target system that we may be interested in describing with a theory or uh, representing with a model. So the idea here is that, you know, the only way to make uh, a perfect model, say, of something you're interested in in the world would be to reproduce that thing in all of its detail. And, of course, that would be a fairly useless model. I mean, we have the thing to begin with. Um, So what we typically do when we build a model is we take certain features of the thing that we're interested in in the world and we create a model um, that incorporates only those features. Or to use theory talk, we come up with a theory that uses only a certain number of parameters, that is, a certain number of descriptors of the things that are in the that we're interested in in the world, but not all of them. And we focus particularly on those things. So the use of the term abstract here really um, uh, has an antecedent in Aristotle. It's the idea of abstracting from reality, pulling certain features of reality into a representation without any pretense of being comprehensive in doing so. The idea of idealization is not so much about pulling only certain features of reality into a representation, but it has to do with the nature of the features we have pulled into a representation. So idealization is the idea that when we um, incorporate some aspect of reality into a model or a theory, we often do so in a way that uh, really departs from the way the thing is in the real world. So to give an example, in Newtonian mechanics, it's kind of a a hidden assumption uh, in all the mathematical equations uh, that Newton uses to describe uh, bodies in motion and so on, that the masses of bodies are concentrated at extensionless points at their center of gravity. Well, you and I know that neither of our masses are concentrated at extensionless points at our centers of gravity, right? It's distributed throughout our bodies. Now, that assumption that mass is concentrated that way is an idealizing assumption. It represents something in the world in a way that we know it not to be. And so that, in a nutshell, is the distinction. It's a distinction between picking only some features of a target system in reality that we're interested in versus uh, describing or characterizing those features in a way that we know them not to be, describing them in an ideal way. Great. And so pure abstractions can be true, but pure idealizations can't be true. And in effect, most scientific theories are a combination of these. Now, we the, the reason why this is important and this sort of brings us into this really wonderfully rich, um, very, I think, satisfying conclusion to the book is that you're arguing here um, for the relevance of understanding this in the context of arguing for an idea of approximate truth, right? And so this is this really is a combination because we started the book and we started the conversation with this question of, um, you know, is our scientific theories about the world true, thinking that this was going to be perhaps, at least for those who, who may not have thought about these questions deeply, or even perhaps for some who have, an all-or-nothing proposition, and what you're giving 
yes at the end is a very complete, well-worked-out, coherent um, option for thinking about this not as an all-or-nothing proposition at all. Um, so the sort of the reason why art comes in here is that you're using this, uh, or the book is using this um, to, um, in analogy to scientific knowledge, and arguing that truth in both domains should be understood as approximating reality by means of representation. And this is rep- this is why we brought up representation. This becomes crucial to the sort of crescendo of the book at the end. And that greater approximate truth can be understood in terms of improving representations of uh, of nature of the world along two dimensions, right? In terms of both abstractions and idealizations, with our which are distinct but both sort of relevant to developing this idea of approximate truth. Okay, so what am I leaving? out here. So what, what can you say, uh, in terms of understanding approximate truth and this idea and why this is important, can you say a little bit more as we sort of come to the end of this book and move on to sort of concluding questions about what we can do with this idea of approximate truth and um, and why it's important and how it's important and how we can use this to, to work out new ideas about scientific truth? Sure thing. Yeah. By the way, I think you've given uh, a wonderful summary of the idea. In fact, perhaps better than I could do. So uh, I I won't add much except to say that uh, I think it is important that we have uh, a conception of what it could mean for something to be approximately true uh, if scientific realism is going to be a viable position at all. Because one thing that we often do in the philosophy of science, and um, I think due to our discredit, is we discuss things in ways that we know are idealizing of the very scientific phenomena we're interested in describing. So when scientific realists say, well, you know, our best scientific theories are true, of course, they don't really mean that. That by itself is an idealization. We mean that they're close to the truth, uh, that theories over time have been getting closer to the truth. We mean things like that. But then it becomes very important to understand what these metaphors like approximate truth or being close to the truth, right? There's a kind of distance metaphor and talking about how far away you are from the truth, what these metaphors could actually mean. Otherwise, it's not entirely clear what the position amounts to. And so this is the reason at the end of the book, I really turn to the idea of making sense of our practices of theorizing and model building in terms of the ways in which we deviate from the truth via abstraction and idealization. And as you, I think, very nicely put it, we can think of approximate truth and increasing approximate truth over time as theories develop, hopefully, if all's going well, in terms of uh, reducing the amount of abstraction where that's necessary in order to give a better account of the phenomena that we're interested in. Maybe in our abstraction, we pulled out a few features of the targets we're interested in, but, you know, we really need to pull out some others to give a very uh, good and helpful uh, characterization of the phenomena so we could decrease the degree of abstraction. And, of course, we can decrease the idea of idealization. We can take sort of caricatures that we've built of the phenomena at issue and make them more realistic by de-idealizing. And there are various ways in which we might do so. Um, The reason I think that there are nice uh, inroads here into thinking about art is that art is a domain in which people for a very long time have realized that there are different conventions according to which works of art 
represent their subject matter, if indeed they have an explicit subject matter. And this is an idea that comes from Nelson Goodman, but from various other people. But in order to understand what, say, for example, a work of art is telling you about some putative subject matter, what you have to do is to understand the conventions in terms of which that information is represented. And of course, different schools of art have different conventions by means of which they convey information to us about the world and about their subject matter. And so the sciences, I think, in this respect are no different. There are different conventions by which our theories and models are communicating information to us about the world. And understanding how abstraction and idealization work um, is part of understanding the different conventions by which information is contained. So that when someone says, oh, well, that scientific theory doesn't give us any knowledge, look at how idealized it is. Well, you might say, look, once you understand how idealization works, then you might understand what kind of information that theory or that description is giving us. It might be in the limit, giving us very little information. It might be giving us information solely about the existence of something that we've latched onto in reality and that we're attempting to describe with a very caricature theory or model. But once we understand these conventions of representation, we can better understand what it might be for something to be approximately true. Great. Thank you so much. Now, Anjan, there's, this is an exceptionally rich book, and we there are entire chapters that we didn't have a chance um, to cover. Um, there's so much more in here um, than we had a chance to talk about. It's such a rich book. Is there anything in particular um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you want to make sure um, to point out for listeners who haven't yet had the chance uh, to read the book? Well, perhaps I'll just echo one thing that you mentioned in uh, your last comment, and that had to do with the way in which I think some of these debates have uh, often been characterized in rather totalizing terms. So if you're a scientific realist, that means that you think that scientific theories are true. And if you're a scientific anti-realist, that means that you think that they're not true, at least not in terms of what they tell us about the unobservable. And I think that it's important not only to us as scholars, but also um, to those of us who want to think about how scientific knowledge plays a role in public discourse and in thinking about what sorts of decisions we should make about not only school curricula, but, uh, you know, emission standards and uh, the kinds of decisions we'd want to make uh, in, in public policy with respect to the sciences. It's important for us not to have a totalizing view of what scientific knowledge is. Um, part of what I'm trying to do in the book is to say uh, there are ways in which we need to look at scientific knowledge which will allow us to put some greater store in some aspects of scientific knowledge than others. And that, in fact, this is an important thing to do as we think about some of these larger questions. So uh, the devil is in the details, and uh, it's very kind of you to say that it's rich. If it's rich, it's in part because I'm trying to grapple with a lot of those details that don't really admit of this kind of totalizing analysis. I think that's one of the things that makes the book so useful and so potentially um, useful to a, a transdisciplinary and interdisciplinary group is that in avoiding this kind of totalizing um, discourse and this totalizing explanation, you're really giving readers, and, and I, I would you know, say again, readers even outside of philosophy who may not have experienced reading um, texts on the philosophy 
philosophy of science, but who might want tools to think um, in a different way or perhaps more carefully about fundamental notions in their own practice, like theory, like object, like what does it look like to talk about relations between things. And you're giving us tools to do um, to, to develop our own theories about our you know the aspects of our own research, some of which may bear direct import to the issues of scientific realism and some of which don't. And I think the um, the emphasis that you put here also in your own rhetoric in the book of um, making sure that we know that you're not saying that this is necessarily the only way to think about um, what scientific knowledge looks like is part and parcel of that effort to avoid totalizing explanations here. And I think that works um, that exceptionally well. So, yay. Very funny of you to say so. Thank you. So, Anjan, since the book's initial publication, because this did initially come out in 2006, and um, we're talking about the 2010 edition, at least that's the one that, that I have. Um, right. as 2007 the, originally, sorry. Oh, 2007, excuse me. Yes, of course, 2007 and 2010's the edition I have. Um, as we wrap up, uh, my penultimate question for you, um, are there any aspects of the arguments that you've articulated here um, that you've reworked since its initial publication or that you might think differently about now? Yeah. I think there are a number of things in the book that I will continue to think about for the rest of my life. I mean, these are uh, some very fundamental issues uh, that I've tried to tackle here, I think. And they're, as you mentioned earlier, really in the background of a lot of discussions that happen very broadly across the entire field. I think the issue of scientific realism is often lurking uh, in the background and often not very far in the background um, with respect to a lot of discussions that we have in history and philosophy and sociology of science. So there are a lot of things here that I think I will continue to think about. Um, One thing that I have uh, extrapolated a little bit in some recent work is the idea of sociability, Um, the idea that there are different ways we might carve nature and uh, different ways that we might describe categories of things that are out there in a way that still seems fitting for a scientific realist. And so I've written a couple of papers that uh, take that idea little bit further. Um, One thing that I am working on currently and would like to um, continue to develop is an implicit theme in the book. And this is something you touched on very early. The idea that, um, as you say, I'm not recommending particular details of the metaphysical account I give of the foundations of scientific realism as the only conceivable way of giving foundations for scientific realism. And this idea that there may be more than one way of rationally conceiving the foundations, the very core concepts of our discourse about what's real and what isn't, is a theme that I've taken into later work. And in fact, right now I'm working on a book manuscript that's tentatively titled uh, Metascientific Ontology, in which I explore this theme even further. Great. It sounds great. And when you're done with that, send me an email and we'll talk about that one as well. <laughs> well, Anjan, thank you so much um, for making the time. This was uh, an exceptional experience for me to read the book. I really enjoyed it. And, and I hope um, listeners will, who haven't yet had a chance to read the book will go out and grab a copy and, um, and share the experience as well. So thank you so much. Carla, it was a wonderful discussion for me. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks so much, and we will see you next time.